Well, good morning, guys. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in those. Today we'll be in John chapter 7. We'll be reading from verses 1 through, actually through 24. It's kind of a late edition on that. Today we uh, pick up where we left off in the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 7. And what we see today is uh, we see opposition beginning to build and build and build, and it comes to a head at the end of John 8, and honest, uh, later on when Jesus is crucified on the cross. But when we read a story like John chapter 7, sometimes we like to disconnect. We say that I'm, I'm, I can't relate to Jesus' brothers or his followers or to the Jews, but I believe that we have a lot more in common than we might think. Notice John chapter 7, I'm reading verses 1 through 24, it's a little longer section, so hang in there. After these things, Jesus went, was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea. So that you and your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always opportune. The Lord cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves, and I do not go up to the feast because my name, my time, excuse me, has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, the, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking to kill him at the feast and were saying, where is Jesus? And there, there was much grumbling amongst the crowd concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And neither one of them are fully correct. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become so learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Verse 19, Did not Moses... Did he not give you the law? Yet none of you carry out the law. Why do you then seek to kill me? What is he saying? You're hypocrites. Verse 20, the crowds then answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered, I did one deed, and you marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it was from Moses, but because it was from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you then angry with me, because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Amen. Bow with me in a brief word of prayer. Lord, 
thank you that you've given us a reminder of what you have done and that you are coming again. And Lord, I pray that day would hasten, that you would come again. And Lord, thank you for the gospel that this reminds us of, that you have come and that you've shed your blood for the remission of sin, that your, your blood was the satisfaction of the, my payment of, of the sin that I have committed. And Lord, you took on the sins and shame of the world, and you give it to me as salvation free of charge. What marvelous love is this. Lord, your love and your grace I may never fully understand. Lord, I thank you that we can gather today together around your word. I pray that you would open our eyes that we may observe wonderful things from your law, And let us prove ourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Thank you for this morning and for a new year. Praise the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. True or false? True or false? That at times we as Christians can oppose the will of God. Let me say that again. True or false? That we as Christians can oppose the will of God. Yeah. The answer to that question is true. We may not like to admit it, but we all, probably at all times, and more times, at some times, I'm saying that word way too much, we can oppose God. And I know this both biblically and personally, that we each struggle to fully walk with God both every day, And we struggle to oppose him and his will. And to be honest, uh, many of us can be like a guy named Richie. I have been opposed many, many times in my life. I imagine we each have been opposed. Uh, But none so stark as when I was 23 years old. I I talk about this place of employment very often uh, because I saw the depravity of man on full display, okay? Uh, the brokenness of people. It was like every day of walking into the cesspool of sin. Anyways, I won't talk about that. But at one time, as you all know, probably if you've been here for any length of time, I worked at a company called Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And right out of college, I had a lot of energy and ambition to make a less than ideal situation work. So after seven months of working there, I put in a promotion for a manager position. And I uh, competed with a lot of other people, and I think I was the youngest person probably in the Tennessee Valley, especially the youngest person putting in for that position. I was the youngest person. I had probably worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car the least amount of time, yet I was the one who got the management position. Okay, so now I'm the youngest. I've worked there the least amount of time, and now I am managing people that put in for that same promotion that I got that they didn't. Now imagine the first week of working there at that particular branch. What's the temperature of the room? Okay? So there's probably some resentment and opposition that I have towards now, or my employees now have towards me. But there was a young man named Richie that just took the cake, so to speak. He uh, hated the fact that I got the promotion and that he did not. 
And I remember the very first week I started there, it was like any time I asked him to do something, what happened? It was just this opposition, this fight, this conflict that happened. So I just got tired of it, just to be honest. And I, you know, pulled him in my office. I was calm and I was quiet. You know, I was like, okay, hey, Richie, man, can you please be a team player? Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking most human beings would probably walk out of the man, their boss's office and probably get with the program. Well, this guy had different ideas. He decided to walk out of my office, walk in front of the entire branch, in front of all the employees and customers, and begin to mock me. Okay? Now, if you know my personality, uh, <laughs> I don't take those things very well, okay? So I remember, uh, this is not my finest moment, I'm not saying do this, but I remember walking out of my office, hearing him mock me, and I pointed directly at him, and I said, Richie, you better shut your mouth. Not my finest moment, but then I called him back into my office, and it did not end well for him, okay? I'll say it that way. But oftentimes in the Christian life, we can, we can be just like Richie, who are self-consumed by our own disappointment, are blinded by our own desires, that we then oppose not just our earthly authority, but our heavenly Father. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can become so self-consumed, so blinded by our own desires and disappointments. Sometimes we, be, we can become so confused as to what the Lord is really doing in our lives, that we have a hard time seeing the forest through the trees. So then we are seeking the will of the Lord, and oftentimes our confusion causes us to oppose the will of God and not walk according to it. We as Christians all, all, including this guy up here, we as Christians all struggle to do the will of the Lord and not to oppose Him. We each have in our lives things that we harbor, sin that we keep to ourselves, disappointment that lead to scars that we have towards God and to other people. We each struggle to love one another and we cause this to have opposition, not towards, not just towards God, but also towards other people. This tension of opposition this, this opposition, this tension that we are talking about here this morning is the tension that I see in John chapter 7. We see it in two different groups of people. We see group number one oppose Jesus, and, that, and they are his own brothers. And then we see group number two, we see the group of the Jews that are confused as to what God is doing through Jesus. So, if you have your Bible, turn in those to John chapter 7, and we will see the unlikely opposition building. If you are familiar, John chapter 5 through 12, that section of the Gospel of John is what I would call is the discourse on Jesus' deity. It's been three weeks since we've talked about the Gospel of John. What, so what happened at the end of John chapter 6? If you remember at the end of John chapter 6, Jesus tells his multitude of followers, he says to them what? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now that would be a bit, a bit weird if I was standing there as well. So what happens at the end of John chapter 6? A host of thousands perhaps of disciples walk away from Jesus because they are a little bit confused as to what's going on when he, he says that. And who remains? His twelve. So when we pick up in John chapter 7... We have opposition beginning to build and to build. And four months ago, a lot of disciples have walked away from Jesus, and that is where we pick up today. The, the answer I'm trying to 
the question I'm trying to answer today is why do Christians oppose God? Why do Christians oppose God? Now, I want you to notice the setting of our story in verses 1 and 2. We have the location of our story, and then we have the time of our story. Notice verse 1 with the location. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, were, was near. Now, verse 1 is the location, and verse 2 is the time. So where is Jesus when we start in John chapter 7? Where is he? He is in the region of Israel called Galilee. Now, to kind of put the nation of Israel in perspective, the nation of Israel is about the size of New Jersey. Okay, to kind of give you an idea how big it is. We think that the nation of Israel is about the size of the United States, but it's really actually tiny. And the, and the region of Galilee is where? It's in the northern part of the country. And then where does Jesus desire to go? He says, for he was unwilling, or unwilling at this time, to go into Judea. So Jesus is in the northern part of the nation, and Judea is kind of in the south-central area of the nation itself. And notice, very carefully... Don't skip over that phrase in verse 1. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because of the Jews seeking to kill him. Put a little a sticky note in your mind, and we'll revisit that here in just a second. So the location he is in is in Galilee, northern Israel. But then notice the timing. Verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Now this gives the chronological timing of the story in John chapter 7 that it's at the Feast of Booths. Now you're going to ask me, what is that and where is the timing? Okay, To kind of give you an idea, the Gospel of John, the reason we know that Jesus had a three-year ministry is solely based upon, really, the Gospel of John itself. Because we have time markers throughout the Gospel of John. That in John chapter 2, we have a mention of the Passover feast. That's kind of year 1. And in John chapter 6, we have the second mention of the Passover. So between John 2 and John 6 is one year. And then in John 13, we have the third mention of the Passover, which is another year. Okay, so you track it with me. But here in John chapter 7, we have a Feast of Booths mentioned. Let me put it all together for you. This is now, this is, I try to every week at one point in my sermon to give you something I call a TMI. That means too much information. So if you want to uh, turn off, you can, but I'll pick you back up here in a few minutes. Because I feel like I just really need to unfold for us the culture of the Jewish nation at this time. There are three annual feasts that the nation of Israel actually observes every year. The first feast of the year is called Passover. It's called Passover. It is observed in early April. And what does that feast commemorate? It commemorates the the passing over of God over the doorposts of the nation of Israel while they're in captivity to Egypt. If you remember that story, in a sense, Passover is their 4th of July. It celebrates their liberation from the nation of Egypt. But then the next feast in the calendar is Pentecost. We don't really talk about that one a whole lot. It's celebrated in late May, and it celebrates the revelation of the Torah, and then you have the last annual Jewish feast, which is the Feast of Booze, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it reminds the nation of Israel of the 40 years that they spent in the desert. 
Now, I don't know what it really means to a Jewish person, but if I was Jewish in the first century, I would probably think of the 40 years in the desert as one lesson, do not make God mad. I'm just saying. There was a lot of crazy things that happened in the desert. So so where we are in John chapter 7 is that we're at the Feast of Booths. So Passover is in early April, Pentecost is kind of in late May, and and then Feast of Booths is kind of mid to late October. So, let me put the chronological schedule in your mind. Okay, you tracking with me? So, the time between John 6 and John 7, there's a time gap of four months. So, what we fail to see in our culture is that there is four months that have passed since his disciples have walked away, and then when we enter into John chapter 7. But why is that important? Okay, so what's, what's Jesus doing in the four months? If you, if you look at the other gospel accounts, Jesus is taking his twelve. All of these disciples just left at the end of John chapter 6. And Jesus, between John 6 and John 7, is taking his twelve and he's pouring into them time and teaching them how to really follow Christ. But think about it from a different perspective. I believe those four months have created the seedbed of bitterness and resentment towards Jesus that we see in the first group of opposition. Notice the first source of opposition in John 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Jews, the Feast of Booze, was near. So it's been four months since the end of John 6. Therefore his brother said him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Notice, wait, wait, notice the last verse there in verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So what are they doing? I'm going to talk about it in just a second. My, the, the question I'm answering is, why do people, or why do we as Christians have a tendency to oppose God? Reason number one is that we can become consumed by self, or we can be consumed for contempt. I want you to notice verses 1 through 5 again. Who is the group that opposes Jesus? It is his brothers. But then notice verse 3 with me real quick. It says, therefore, his brothers. What do, you, what do you know, what do you recognize about that noun, brothers, there? It's not singular, it's plural. So multiple brothers of Jesus oppose him and mock him. Now, we don't know all of the siblings that Jesus has in his family, but we know according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, that Jesus has at least four brothers, and he has at least two sisters. So Jesus, to, at minimum, is the oldest of seven kids. The four brothers are Joseph, James, Simon, and Judas. And we know Judas wrote the book of Jude, and James wrote the book of James. So we know two of the four eventually come to follow Jesus. But here, what's their attitude? Right? It says in verse 5 that they did not believe in him. So what's, what's really going on here? In my opinion, they're richy, right? They, they resent Jesus. They're bitter. They hold Jesus in contempt so much that they would publicly mock him. They said in verse 
3, leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. What's the irony there? That there's not a host of disciples, there's basically only 12 at this particular moment in time, and what have they already seen? They've already seen his works, they know he's the Messiah, they know he's the Christ, they know he is Lord. But in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. What's their motivation to mock Jesus? Could be a couple of reasons. Number one, that they're trying to figure out if Jesus is the true Messiah, because in their eyes the Messiah has a certain image or picture, and they're trying to see if this Jesus, their oldest brother, meets this criteria. But it could be something else entirely. There seems to me at the base of this brother, his brother's request of mocking, there seems to be this seedbed of bitterness and resentment. I don't know that to be 100% true, but it seems to me that there is. Because think about, I mean, think, okay, think about growing up with Jesus. Okay? I mean, imagine, I know Mary said at least one time, she said to his brothers, Joseph, can you please be like your brother Jesus? I mean, how exhausting would it be to grow up with Jesus? He's, he, well, you're just perfect then. And Jesus is like, well, of course I am. Uh, so, I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine growing up in the same household with Jesus because here is the perfect son of God who could do no wrong. And Mary and Joseph know that. And his brothers and sisters are sitting around probably angry that Jesus has this standard of perfection. And I think probably also his brothers are a little bit resentful here because he spent four months with 12 people people, but I want you to notice their, their bitterness and resentment. How does it come to head? What, do, what, do they really, what are they really wanting here? One commentator agrees with me. I think their motive for Jesus, for them wanting Jesus to be publicly known is found in verse 1. For he was unwilling to walk into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The nation of Israel is a small nation. I would not put it past the realm of possibility that his brothers know that there are people in the region of Judea that want to kill him. So their resentment and their bitterness shows and rears its ugly head. So what is the reason that they reject Jesus? There's only one thing, that they are consumed by, their, by themselves. They are consumed or blinded by the picture of the Messiah that they want, or they are consumed by their bitterness and resentment towards Jesus and his perfection. I really don't know. But then notice Jesus' response to his brothers, verse 6. So Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, for your time is always opportune. Notice that. Why? Because they can believe in Jesus right there. Verse 7. Notice what Jesus infers about them. The world cannot hate you. Why? But it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. What is he calling his brothers? <laughs> you unbelieving evil people. Okay, sorry. Go up to the feast yourselves, and I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he then secretly, he himself, went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. How does Jesus respond to their opposition? He responds with confidence. He knows his time has not yet come, so he sends his brothers out ahead of him, and then he goes down to the feast 
of booze in secret down to Jerusalem, which is south of where Jesus currently is. I've noticed a tendency in the Christian life that sometimes we think, oh, that is them and this is me. Or that, that, that is their struggle and this is not, that's not my struggle at all. I believe we have a lot in common with Jesus' brothers. Whether we like to admit it, at times in the Christian life, we can be like his brothers. That we can become so consumed by self that we begin to oppose the work of God. That we can become so consumed by self that we would hinder the voice of God, that we would no longer walk by the Spirit, and that we... I've noticed in life that we can be so consumed by self that we make important life decisions without even approaching the Lord in prayer. Without approaching the Lord in prayer, how can we possibly walk according to the will of God? If we do not seek Him then how can we possibly walk according to the will of God? And if we are not walking according to the will of God, then what are we really doing? We're opposing it, in a sense. That we can become so consumed by sin, that even as Christians, that we can be so consumed and deceived by sin, that our view of the Savior becomes distorted. Or, in America, we can become so consumed by our schedules... That even as Christians, that we have no thought, and this is, this is this guy going like 25 fingers up at me, and you can all point at me if you want to on this one, that we can become so consumed by our schedules that we wake up each morning and we have no earthly idea what the will of God is for that day. That we can become so consumed by our scars, that the wounds we have in life turn into scabs, which turn into scars, that we shut God out. Or sometimes we do this, that we take something that we love, that we really want to keep to ourselves, and we hide it back in a closet of our spiritual life, and we don't let the Lord in. Whether that's a sin, whether that's a dream, whether that's a hope, whether that's a goal, we, we, we take, okay, this is mine, you can, have, you, can have, you can have the rest of everything, but this is mine, this is what I want. But instead of being like Jesus' brothers who are consumed by themselves, consumed by either their bitterness or resentment or their view of the Messiah, instead of being like them, let us see Jesus for who He truly is. He has proven to His brothers in John chapter 2 who He truly is, that He is the Messiah by turning water into wine. And they're just completely ignorant to the fact. Let us not be like them. Let us see God for who He truly is. That God is a God of love. That He is good. That He wants our good. Even if we cannot see it. That He wants us to follow Him. He wants us to surrender to Him fully. Let us not hold back. And let us not be so consumed with what we want in life that we totally push God aside. So there's one source of opposition, and that's Jesus' brothers. But then there's a second source of opposition, which is the Jews, or we would call the crowds. And they are confused over three things. Notice verses 11 through 13. This is where their opposition begins. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast, and were saying, where is he? 
there was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him, and some were saying, he is a good man, and others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Why do we and why do they oppose God? Reason number one is because they are consumed by self and contempt. Reason number two is that they are confused. The Jews oppose Jesus here in verses 11 through 13 because they're confused. What do they say about Jesus? Verse 12. They were grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Or, on the contrary, he leads people astray. So in their eyes, there's only two possibilities that Jesus could be. Right? He's either just a good man or he's leading people astray. What are they really confused about here? They're confused about Jesus' person, you could say identity, but you could also say they're confused about Jesus' mission. But what's the irony here? What's the irony that the, the crowds are, con- are confused that he's just a good man or that he leads people straight? What's the irony here? That he's neither. He's not just a good man and he definitely does not lead people astray. In his book, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this. It's a little bit longer of a quote that I usually like to share, but I find it helpful. C.S. Lewis says this, A man who is merely a man is said the sort of things Jesus said would not, would, be, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool, you could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, for he did not intend to. So Jesus here, they're confused. The crowds are saying, okay, who is this guy? And some people are saying that he is a good teacher, a good man. And some people say that he is leading people astray, but he is neither one of those. Who is Jesus according to the Gospel of John? He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John chapter 20, verse 31. So they're confused, the crowds are confused over his mission, but then notice the second piece there in verse 14 through 18. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become so learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. They oppose Jesus out of confusion for his mission, and they are confused for his education. Notice what they say in verse 15. The Jews were then astonished, saying, How has this man become so learned, having never been educated? What are they saying? How could this guy... Know all of these things if he's never been taught in a formal setting. If he's never been a scribe or a Pharisee. And what does Jesus want to say? <laughs> okay. By the way, I created you. I created all information. That's the reason I know this stuff is because I am the creator and sovereign God of the world. I would not make a good Jesus. I would just start zapping people down. Okay. 
They're confused over his mission education, but then notice the third piece, 19 through 24. Did, God, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me then? The crowds answer, what? You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Wait a second. Verse 1 says there are people wanting to kill you, so they're a little bit confused. Verse 21, Jesus had answered, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the Father. And on the Sabbath, you then circumcised a man. Verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, how are you then angry with me, because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment." They opposed Jesus out of confusion for his mission, for his education, and number three, for his permission. His power to overrule their man-made rules. Because what does Jesus point out here in a word? What does Jesus point out here in verses 9 through 14? He points out their hypocrisy, right? That, that they would circumcise a boy on the Sabbath, but then they would not be willing to let Jesus heal an entire human being. Let's, what's, the Jew, what's, the, what's the problem here? The Jews are living the, their life like this. They are so consumed with rules and with regulations that they completely miss the will of God. That they are so consumed with the way things should be done according to what they think that they completely miss that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah that they have been looking for since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and that they may have life in his name. They completely miss it because they are so consumed with their man-made rules. But friends, uh, we can be just like them. That sometimes we in the Christian life can be so consumed with the way we want things done or the way we think things should be done that we completely miss how God is working. Let us not be so consumed with the way we think things should be done, but instead to go to the Lord and see how He wants things done. Let us not be like the crowds who question Jesus over his mission, his, per, his person. You know, one day there will come a time in your life that you will doubt everything that you have been taught in church. One day you will doubt your faith, you will doubt the message of Jesus Christ. And in that day, I hope that you would surround yourself with the truth of God's word let us not question Jesus' education. Because God really does know what he is doing, despite what we may think at the time. And friends, let us not be like Jesus' brothers, who let their contempt, their bitterness, and their resentment towards Jesus Christ come out so much to the fact that they want him dead. Now, I hope that you don't want Jesus dead. Uh, hopefully that's just him. But sometimes, can I just speak frankly? 
that sometimes we let the wounds of life turn into scabs and the scabs turn into scars and the scars become very sensitive and we take the Lord and we shut him into the closets of our spiritual life in that particular area and we just leave him out of certain areas. There's certain sins we have in our life, certain grudges, certain bitterness, certain, certain resentment we have towards other people or towards the Lord. And the message I see here in this passage is that let us not oppose God in any way. Why? Because He is good and He does know all things. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is the Lamb of God that has paid for my sin. And He is a master that is worthy to follow. My point today is this, is to replace opposition with confidence. To replace the opposition with confidence. We each have areas in our life that are standing in opposition to the Lord. Whether that area is our love of materialism, whether that area is our struggle to love people that have hurt us, whether that's a dream or desire that we have, whether that's a scar that you blame to God and that you kind of shut him out. We, we each have areas of our life that mimic either his brothers that we hold God in contempt or that we mimic the crowd, that we are confused as to what's really going on in life, so then we oppose the will of the Lord. So my question for you in the application today, I have two questions. Is question number one is which group do you relate to? Which group do you relate to? Are you Jesus' brothers who oppose Jesus because of some bent that they have? Or are you the Jews who are confused as to the will of God and who Jesus is, and they shut out Jesus mainly out of ignorance and blinders? And then my second question for you today is how can you replace that opposition, that area of, in the closets of your spiritual life, that area of your life, how can you replace that opposition with confidence and with truth? I believe each of us here today have areas, I certainly do, have lots of areas in my spiritual life that need to be cleaned out and need to be washed in the blood of Christ, and need to be confessed to the Lord. And this week, <laughs> it was like I've said every once in a while, being, being a preacher by trade is not always the funnest occupation, uh, because it's like 24-7 uh, living in conviction. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, anyways, I won't air out all of my dirty laundry here this morning. Um, but there's, we all have areas, uh, clothes in our spiritual closet, that need to be taken down and washed in the blood of Christ, confessed, to our Lord and replaced with truth. We each have sin that hinder us from truly following God. We each are probably in a state of confusion. Lord, where are you taking me? What are you doing? What do you have me to go? What ministry do you have me to serve? And we all have them. Let's just take them down. Let's wash them and let's just repent and confess them and let us follow the Lord. Let's just admit it. Because, friends, let us not be either one of these. Let us not be the brothers who hold Jesus in contempt. Let us not be the Jews who just are totally confused, even though Jesus has made himself crystal clear. He has made it evident 
that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and they are completely blind to it. Let us not be that. What is the area of your life that stands in opposition to the will of God? What is the area of your life that stands in opposition to God? I would encourage you to identify it, to confess it, and to replace that with truth. 1 John 1 9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because let us as Christians not oppose the will of God, but let us walk instead by the Spirit. Let us be careful not to just know the truth, but do the truth and not delude ourselves. Let us not oppose God out of some self-centered consumerism or self-righteousness. Let us not oppose God because we are confused as to His will and to His power. He has made that evident to us in the Scripture if we walk by the Spirit. But let us rather put on the armor of God. Let us follow our God to the ends of the earth to go boldly and follow Him taking the message of the Gospel to the end of our streets and to the end of the world. Let us not oppose God out of a, out of a struggle of consumerism or contempt, but let us be like Jesus, confident in His character, in God's Word, in God's Spirit. Before I close, if this sermon uh, was alien to you, it may have been to most some of us, um, but if this sermon was alien to you, if you don't know really what's going on here, why we're singing songs, why we're talking about the blood of Christ and all this stuff, then it really boils down to this, that you and I are sinners. Can I get an amen? Let's say that. You and I are sinners, amen? What does that mean, that you and I make mistakes, right? That you and I are imperfect beings, and that because we're imperfect, what happened? That we are cast out of the presence of a perfect God. We were created in perfection in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, but that has been broken because of our free will to sin. But then God did something in return that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He displayed his love through the cross and he gives, he died to pay for my sin and he gives us eternal life by faith that if I would come to him, acknowledging my sin and believing in him, that I would have eternal life. If you've never believed in him, I would encourage you to believe and be changed. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, sometimes, Lord, we disconnect from the story. We, we say that that's not me. And Lord, you know, in John chapter 7, it's not us. We didn't live in the first century. But Lord, we have the same tendencies that his brothers and the Jews have. Um, Lord, I just... I thank you for your love and your grace and your forgiveness that you freely give to us. What magnificent love you have displayed on the cross and in your word. And Lord, I just pray that we would uh, be concerned, not just for uh, knowing something more, but that we would be concerned to live for you, to walk according to the Spirit, 
to be concerned for the sin that is in our life. And Lord, if we have sin, areas of opposition, Lord, that we would come to you and that we would confess our sins because we know that you are a gracious and loving God that will forgive us of all our iniquities. And Lord, I just pray that we would come to you knowing that you are a loving and merciful God. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for all those that are tuning in online. I thank you for those. I pray that you keep them safe. Thank you that they are home. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would... Bless them in their quarantine. Lord, thank you for your grace and your love for each of us. Lord, we love your Son. And thank you for the message of your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.